Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast. I have a very interesting guest this morning, Monica Maruschek. Major Maruschek is the United States Marine Corps Reserves and a commercial pilot. She is the second only of three women in the world to fly infamous AV-8B Harrier single-seat jet in combat. She's the founder and CEO of Nova Hypnosis and Wellness. She's a leadership coach and a board-certified hypnotist who draws from her training and experience as a Marine Corps combat jet pilot. What an interesting biography you have, Monica. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. I think for me, I sit so close to my everyday activities in my life that it's hard for me to see the forest for the trees sometimes. So hearing your description was very eye-opening for me. Right now, my life is nothing like what you just read in the sense that <laughs> I have three small children. Two of them are under two. I have a boy who's seven, another young boy who just turned two, and a baby girl who is five months old. And wow, you are busy. I am, yes, I'm in a constant state of juggling some kind of flu or diarrhea or um, <laughs> mini mini crisis. On top of that, I'm also in the Marine Corps Reserves. And like you read about, I do own and run my own business. So it's a very dynamic and challenging period of my life. I think when I was flying Harriers, life was actually much easier. I just didn't realize it at the time. Part of me wishes I could go on deployment right now, just to only <laughs> to have simplify. to focus for myself. <laughs> yeah. How did you end up in the Marine Corps and how did you end up becoming a pilot in a single seat jet in combat? It was almost by accident. I'll tell you the nickel version of how I discovered the Marine Corps. Since I was young, I wanted to fly jets. I thought jets were amazing, challenging, dynamic, and fun. Something I wanted to do but had no exposure to before college because no one in my family has a aviation background and my father has a limited military background from his time um, serving in the Romanian army as part of the conscription or draft over there. So he didn't have a very good opinion, not of the Marine Corps specifically, but of the military as a general institution, because in Romania, it was not a volunteer force like we have. So in college, I met a man and he and we both had Siberian Huskies. That was how we met. Our dogs met each other first, and then we got to know each other. And it turned out that his brother was going through Marine Corps flight training. And just from asking him questions, learning more about the military, learning more about aviation, I got to realize that 
it was very feasible for me to go into the military, especially with a college degree. I could start off as a as an officer, which sounded a little bit more enjoyable <laughs> to start off that way than to start off as a private because it is a different set of challenges when you're enlisted than when you're an officer. And aviation was my dream as a child. So I decided to just see what would happen if I applied. And so I applied to uh, the officer selection office in Syracuse and then started training, physical training to prepare for officer candidate school. And really just kept exploring. It was a journey of discovery for me. I think a lot of people go into the military or in aviation because they have a background. Their father or grandfather was in the Navy or was a pilot, so on and so forth. And they are following in the footsteps of their family members. Whereas for me, it was a complete journey of discovery. And I had no idea that there had been almost no other women to have flown the Harrier or to have flown jets, period. One officer selection officer, one Oso, told me when I said that I wanted to fly jets, he says, okay, yeah, right. That's a nice dream, but I can count on one hand the number of women that have flown jets. And I truly thought he was kidding. I thought he was pulling my leg and just trying to discourage mm -hmm. me the way Marines discourage each other from joining the force, you know, just to see if we're really serious. And no, he was serious. Um, in fact, when I was going through flight school and I was having a hard time for reasons we can discuss later, I reached out to the first female to fly a jet aircraft in the Marine Corps. And I asked her, why are you still in? If it was tough and it was challenging and so on and so forth, why did you put up with all of that? Why are you still serving? And she said, well, my contract's not up. And I remember my jaw dropping because I thought, oh my God, how is this possible? I assumed that by the time I had joined the Marine Corps and by the time I was going through flight school, that at least, you know, it was commonplace for women to go through military jet training, where in fact, like Oso had said, I was one of the first handful to go through. And this is in 2005. Very eye-opening for me. Why did you want to become a pilot since you were a kid? Well, there's an image that flashes in my mind when you ask me that question. And it, and it is of me lying at the foot of my parents' bed, lying across on my stomach, watching the TV during the first Gulf War when the media was showing footage of the bombing of Baghdad. And I remember they showed the schematics for the different jets that were dropping ordnance. And I think one of them was the F-14 and all the other fighters out there. And it was a combination, I think, of the challenge, of the intensity. I've always pushed myself. That was the reason that I decided to pursue the Marine Corps versus going into the other services, just because of the reputation that the Marines have for being the most challenging, highest standards, most intense. I love that the thought of being part of that elite group of individuals that was always pushing themselves to higher and higher levels, always holding themselves up to higher and higher challenges and higher standards. And for that same reason, I wanted to fly jets. I, I felt like 
why not go all the way? I mean, just the numbers, there are certain grades that you need to get in flight school in order to make the jet cutoff. Some people would have been amazing to fly jets, but for whatever reason, they needed more helicopter pilots. So they ended up flying helicopters or whatever the case may be. I think what I'm trying to say is anytime I thought of doing anything, I've always thought of how can I max it out? How can I get to the peak of whatever it is that I'm pursuing? And if the peak happens to be flying one platform over another, that's fine. Or if the peak happens to be joining one service over another, then that's fine. I'm very open to whatever the world or life brings my way. And I think that reflects in the winding path that my life has taken so far. And so you as a kid, you decide that this is something that I'll be interested to pursue. So do you then do everything deliberately to achieve that goal? Or would you say that you had it in the back burner and just tried to do well in school and tried to go to university and that was always an option for you? So it's a combination. I take this dual approach anytime I'm pursuing a goal. First, I identify what I want to achieve and I make it very specific and very clear and, and really fantastical. I mean, I remember when I was in a primary flight training, I thought to myself, oh my God, wouldn't it be amazing if I got to fly Harriers? And I envisioned it and I saw myself hovering in the jet and doing all the Harrier specific things that I could imagine at the time. And then I said, wow, that would be incredible. And then I kind of put it on the shelf, so to speak. It was there in the foreground mm -hmm. or the background, kind of depending on how you look at it. And then I just focused on doing really well. I focused on executing the details really well. I was being pulled by this vision. I was being pulled forward in a subconscious way towards that goal, towards that dream. But in a very rational, logical way, I was doing all the things, doing the do to get me closer to that dream. But at the same time, excellence on a daily basis will get you far in any field. So mm -hmm. I wasn't closing myself off. I said, if I do really well in flight school, I may or may not get Harriers, but I'll feel proud of myself. I'll be able to do something else in the Marine Corps. That's a value. I'll have a great reputation. So when I get out, I can do something else. I always try to continually increase my options, even as I'm driving towards one goal. You said earlier that you were going through a tough time when you were in training. So this story is one of those stories that will stay with me forever. And I don't think I would have done anything differently looking back. When I was in Corpus Christi, Texas, in flight school, I just lived the life of a typical flight student. So I had friends, we went out, I had a boyfriend, we were dating, we eventually broke up. Just a post-college type of young adult life with the added bonus of flying aircraft and the incredible confidence you gain when you solo your first aircraft or pull Gs and all that sort of stuff. And I was in VT-27 and the boomers. Then I got selected jets and I was told to go to Kingsville, Texas, which is 50 miles down the road from Corpus Christi. Well, one weekend when I was in Corpus uh, at a bar, it was a martini bar called the Martini Bar. And I met a man named Ramsey 
And it turned out that that man named Ramsey was a flight instructor in VT-27. So I had heard his name in the past because obviously I had just come from VT-27, but I'd never really known him or spoken to him other than in that social environment. And so we got to know one another. We got to know one another very well. We actually started to date. And I was a advanced flight student in Kingsville. He was a primary flight instructor in Corpus. Theoretically, there should be no issue there. There should be no impression of fraternization. But our relationship accelerated so quickly, we actually got married three months after meeting in that bar, three months. So super fast. We're still married today. So uh, what is that? Like uh, 15 years later, we're still married. Rewind back to 2003. As I mentioned, the Marine Corps has very high standards. Well, they don't take very kindly, number one, to the concept of fraternization. And even though Ramsey and I had not fraternized at all, and everything was super above board, in fact, we probably were overly honest and overly upfront, it sparked a lot of controversy in my squad. And already I'm a woman in a jet training pipeline, one of, at that point, probably like one of two or three in the recent history at that time. So you can imagine that the perception of me was very negative. And I had to walk into the ready room every day and you know, feel the energy shift as I walked into the room and find a way to put on a, a strong demeanor and stay focused on the flight that I was about to fly. And I really learned how to compartmentalize during that time period because if I had allowed their judgment of me to affect me, I mean, I would have crumbled into bits. It was pretty mm. obvious that they assumed I had gotten jets because of this flight instructor in Corpus. And even though actually the Marine Corps initiated an investigation of me and mm. initiated this investigation to confirm that we had not fraternized. So the Marine Corps interviewed all my friends, interviewed all his friends, interviewed I think even some of like my civilian people, like my landlord and stuff like that. And everything was cleared because everything was very above board, like I said, but we had to live through that investigation yeah. into our relationship. Wow. And by this point, we're already married. Wow. So very difficult for me to stomach as a flight student because I had always prided myself on as a teenager, I had very high standards. That's how I got into an Ivy League school. In the Ivy League school, I didn't just follow the path of so many other students and go work on Wall Street as an economics major. I said, I want to do something more with my life. I want to challenge myself even more. So I joined the Marine Corps. And then when I was, you know, I didn't just join the Marine Corps. I wanted to be a pilot, right? And I didn't just want to be a pilot. I wanted to fly the most difficult aircraft that I could possibly fly. So I've constantly been pushing myself. And then to be suspected that I had fraternized in order to get jets was just absurd and very hurtful. And it would have been okay if it had just ended there. If they had done the investigation, you know, got it, we cleared your name, you're good. But there was one individual, and I'm going to leave his name out of it, but he was a Marine major 
and his role in the squadron was to be the senior Marine. And in the senior Marine role, he was responsible administratively for the Marines within this Navy unit because the Navy trains with the Marine Corps pilots train with the Navy pilots up through getting their wings. So all Marine aviators are actually naval aviators, and we wear the same gold wings that the Navy aviators wear. So the senior Marine, he was uh, a family man. He was a religious man. There were actually two of them, but their personalities were pretty similar, and they had very similar values. So I'm just kind of going to lump these two gentlemen together. So these two senior Marines were both very family-oriented, very religious. And even after the investigation closed and cleared us of any inappropriate conduct, they continued for nine months after the investigation closed to call me into the office and offer me marital advice, offer me Mm. recommendations on why women make better mothers and, you know, their wife is a better mother and they're a better pilot because of these characteristics of men and these characteristics of women. And, and I would just, what was difficult was that they would have these conversations with me right before I was getting ready to walk to my aircraft. So I would have already briefed the flight and in aviation, you, you brief and then you have a little bit of time to collect yourself, to use the bathroom, to take notes on your kneeboard card. And then you get an out brief by the duty officer. And then you walk to your aircraft to put on your flight gear and get in the jet. And right in that window between the brief, where we've already discussed how the flight is going to go and walking to the jet, these two gentlemen, one succeeded the other in this role, but both of them did the same thing. They would call me into their office and they would proceed to have these discussions with me about why women make better mothers and why what I did, why I should have gotten married in the church, which I didn't. We got married at the Justice of the Peace. Really personal stuff that was very distracting, very disheartening, distracting, demoralizing. Um, How did you handle that? Well, I I really uh, just kind of sat there and smiled and nodded and said, you know, just be nice, get out of this office, just be nice, just agree with him, get out of this office, stay focused. Like that's the internal dialogue that I was um, saying to myself, but it was wearing me down. And my grades reflected uh, how when I first started advanced training in VT21, I was getting a, a lot of above average grades. The grading system is pretty subjective. It's like you either are below average, above average, or average. So I was getting a lot of above average grades. And then this whole thing happened and my grades started to be like average and then it started to be below average. And then finally I got what they say is a down. A down means that you failed your flight. And this flight was a pretty pivotal flight in that it was my solo check ride. In aviation, you fly with an instructor all for the purpose of flying by yourself at some point. And once you get clear to fly by yourself from then on, you can keep flying by yourself. doesn't mean you always fly by yourself, but you alternate. Fly with an instructor, then you fly alone. So on that solo check ride, I failed it because I had what they call a head work issue. Your head's not in the game. And I'd made a couple of mistakes. I was very nervous. I remember I was very anxious. 
And right before walking, one of these two gentlemen, I don't remember which one it was at the time, one of these two gentlemen had called me into his office and had started counseling me again on being a female pilot. I wasn't going to drop. I I refused. I was like, they're trying to chase me out, basically, is what I could see. They're trying Mm -hmm. to psych me out. And they, Mm -hmm. meaning these two very conservative-minded senior Marines. And so this was on top of whatever little judgments were going through the minds of my peers, the other flight students who were male in the squadron. There were maybe one or two other women in the squadron. I look back on it. The meaning that I'm giving to this experience is that it was a forging. It forged my character. It made me stronger than I ever would have been if they had openly and willingly embraced me into the community. It made me extremely laser beam focused because what ended up happening is I got through the first half of the training. There's two phases at that time. I don't know how it is now, but at the time there were two phases, phase one and phase two for advanced jet training uh, in Kingsville. And I got through phase one, but my grades were pretty bad at that point. And you could see the, the drop off and you could map the drop off onto what had been going on. The climate was not favorable towards me. So they tried to disqualify me and they put me up before a board saying that I was not aeronautically adaptable. They pushed my package up to the wing. It went to the assistant wing commander who to this day have so much gratitude that he asked the question that he asked. The question he asked was Moose. So my call sign is Moose. He said, Moose. What the hell is going on? You only have one down and your grades are not good, but I've seen worse. People with worse grades get their wings. So what the hell is going on? Usually when I see a package like this come to my desk, it means that the student doesn't want to be here. And I said, sir, I want to be here. I want to fly. I am so utterly committed to getting my wings. But I, you know, this, this is going on. And I proceeded to tell him essentially the same story I just told you. He said, Roger that, got it. We're going to give you, and he mapped it out. They gave me a six month leave of absence to essentially let the dust settle. And mm-hmm. he initiated an investigation of his own into what was going on in the squadron. How did it's you okay. feel when you opened up to him? I was scared. I really felt that I was speaking the truth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and obviously it was my truth. And I was very grounded in the fact that the concept of the truth will set you free. I don't want to say I had nothing to lose because you can always lose something, I guess. I believed that I had acted in complete good faith. I knew that just looking at my past, I have a history of overachieving, not a person who is lazy or tries to take advantage. I've I've never had privilege. My parents emigrated to the United States from Romania. We didn't ever have any money. My father is an incredibly fair person, almost to a fault. He raised me to be hardworking and rewarded only excellence. And I blamed him for a lot of years for being too harsh on me. 
in hindsight, you know, his tough love forged me into a person capable of flying the Harrier or juggling 12 different things now as a mother and business owner. And I'm also in grad school, finishing up my MBA. So I didn't come from privilege. I never got anything because I was a woman and I wasn't going to start doing that kind of crap as a 24 year old, you know, I was always going to stand on my own two feet. So when I spoke to the assistant wing commander, I spoke from that place of being an upstanding person of integrity. And I believed in my heart that as long as I spoke from that place of truth, that he would see me for who I was. He's a really good person. And the investigation that he launched uh, that the Navy did into this whole brouhaha, it put a stop to everything. I actually got a few apologies from the manning officer of that squadron, as well as a couple of other instructor pilots. And they said, hey, we didn't know this was going on. We only heard one story, one part of the story. Thank you for sharing your experience. So this is a commander saying to me, I'm sorry that this happened. And I told him, I said, sir, I know I could have done things better. I know that I could have probably navigated this more elegantly. I was honestly just doing the best that I could do with the information I had. And then right. there's more to it. They were putting restrictions on where I could live that were different from the restrictions they had on the males. They were telling me that I shouldn't get married because that I shouldn't have a wedding because weddings are more distracting for women than they are for men. Because there were other male pilots who were getting married and they were saying, well, it's different for the guys because, you know, the guys, the women handle all the wedding stuff and and you shouldn't get married because you're a woman and it's going to distract you too much. I mean, they were doing some very bizarre, yeah, placing some very bizarre distinctions on and creating the problem. You know what I mean? I was very focused on getting winged, but the senior officers were making gender specific assumptions about my thought process or my behavior. I ended up switching squadrons after the six month leave of absence. In those six months, my husband and I went to some counseling because all the stress of this stuff that was going on in the squadron was, I was bringing it home with me. And so we were having some problems. And I got stayed current on flying by going to the simulator three times a week. And when I got to the other squadron, which was just down the hall, but it was a fresh start, I didn't start at the beginning. All the grades that I had gotten up until that point were still there, bad as they were. I had a mission. My mission was I had to get an above average flight every other flight. So that was a very tall order. But phase two, was all tactical aviation. So it was weapons, weaponeering, tactical formation flying, aerial reconnaissance or navigation, air combat maneuvering, also carrier landings. So it was all the advanced tactical stuff. I actually did quite well. After that six-month break, I started with weaponeering or weapons. I got two awards I had the best aim of all my peers several times on the weapons debt. I got the above average every other flight and I successfully qualified on the carrier. It was an amazing feeling to have persevered through that 
period of my life where I felt like everything was crumbling around me. My aviation career was crumbling. My Marine Corps career was crumbling. My relationship was now suffering as a result. My relationship with my parents was suffering because they didn't want me to join the military. I was completely alone for that stretch of time. And I stayed really focused and I did the do, doing the things that I needed to do to get the outcomes that I needed to get. It worked out, not the way I thought it would work out, but it worked out, I guess, because of my air to ground awards in training, as well as a couple of other things I did really well. They gave me Harriers instead of Hornets. And I was really, really happy with that. Really happy. Wow. And again, for those who are not familiar, can you tell us a little bit about Harriers versus Hornets and what is so unique about the Harrier? Oh, sure. So Hornets are relative to the Harrier. The Hornet is a much larger aircraft. It has two engines instead of one. The Harrier only has one engine. And the Hornet What's wonderful about it is that it's got a computer, it's computer-assisted flying, so it's fly-by-wire. In other words, the pilot moves the stick and throttle in the movement that he or she thinks is the right movement to do what he or she wants it to do. But the computer has a lot of say in what actually happens. A pilot can move the stick very abruptly, but the aircraft won't do that movement directly. It'll do something more gentle or more appropriate. That capability allows the Hornet to do some amazing flying. It also allows the pilot to have more support. They have uh, a little bit less of a tough job in the cockpit. It also lands as a regular aircraft would land. It's always going forward at a specific airspeed until it wheels on the ground. The Harrier, on the other hand, is smaller, single engine, one pilot. There's no Wizzo or naval aviator in the back seat to help with weaponeering or target acquisition. And it has these nozzles which allow it to fly slow or fast. And it can fly as slow as zero miles per hour. In other words, it can hover like a helicopter. Mm -hmm. And so at air shows, you'll often see the Harrier as one of the key acts because of this capability where it can hover to land. And that was the aircraft that I flew. Very cool. And you have completed hundreds of flights on the AVAB Harrier jet, including hundreds of vertical landings of flights and carriers at sea. And again, for those not familiar with this language, can you please explain a vertical landing and carriers at sea? Sure. So my deployments were all aboard Navy ships. And the Navy ships that I flew off of were called LHDs. That's just the name for aircraft that are amphibious, meaning they can hold aircraft, they can hold ships, like little boats inside of the bottom of the ship. It transports troops. And so this multi-purpose ship has a landing deck that's a thousand feet. So the Harrier deploys with as part of a composite squadron, so a squadron made up of many different airplanes. And the majority of the airplanes are helicopters, attack helicopters like Cobras and Hueys, as well as more transport, medium and heavy lift transport aircraft like the MV-22 now and the CH-53 Super Stallion helicopters. And of course, the Harrier. 
So the Harrier is the strike component of this squadron. And aboard the ships, the Harrier utilizes this vertical takeoff and vertical landing capability. Most of the time, though, it takes off by rolling down this flight deck and taking off at the end of the flight deck. It doesn't use a a launch system of any kind other than its own engine. And it uses the nozzles to facilitate coming off of the flight deck and getting airborne. And then to come into land, the Harrier will always land vertically on a flight deck. So it flies a racetrack pattern in the air and comes around the corner and comes in and begins to slow down by pulling in the nozzles more and more until it comes to a standstill next to the ship. So the ship is moving, you know, maybe 10 miles an hour. And so the Harrier is moving just alongside it. And the pilot then makes little movements of the stick and throttle to slide the Harrier over the flight deck, stabilize the Harrier over the flight deck, and then slowly bring it down to a full stop on the flight deck. And at that point, it just taxis around it back into its parking spot. I've done that hundreds of times on these deployments and on the preparation training leading up to the deployments. Thank you for sharing this. I'd like to switch gears just a little bit. I know we're running out of time, but I would like to ask you why hypnosis? What got you into becoming a board-certified hypnotist? And this is what you do now. This is part of your daily life. It is. Well, I don't really work in the business anymore. I work on the business, primarily doing all of the business development or implementing systems and processes so that we can serve our clients better. It started with the birth of my first son. I used childbirth education technique called hypnobirthing. The idea being that by utilizing guided meditations, guided visualizations, and specific breathing techniques, a mom who's in labor can put herself into a state of self-hypnosis where she can manage the discomfort of childbirth much more effectively and potentially not even need any medication or any assistance. I found it very useful. I had a great experience giving birth to my first son, and I wanted to teach this to other women. But as I was teaching this to other women, I said, you know, I need more training. Again, I wanted another challenge. I already had experience with hypnosis since college, as well as with meditation and guiding other people into hypnosis and meditation as more like a hobby at that point in college. So I got trained, certified in basic hypnosis techniques, advanced hypnosis techniques, condition-specific techniques, also Ericksonian hypnosis. And my goal was really just to help people with behavioral issues or challenges. What has happened, though, since that time, this was back in 2012, 2013, is that the more I know and the more clients I've worked with, and I've worked with a few thousand, and so has my team, certain patterns begin to manifest. And certain thought patterns, certain feelings that underlie all of these behavioral issues like smoking or overeating or nail biting or fear of flying, whatever it is, they all have 
a foundation of similar patterns of thought. And so now what I'm working on in my business is to establish a program that helps people with these fundamental patterns of thought rather than just addressing the symptom, which is the smoking or the symptom, which is the overeating. And so we still help people with the symptoms like the smoking or the overeating or the nail biting. But my passion is to help people set themselves free from the patterns of limiting beliefs that have kept them locked up and prevented them from achieving their full potential. And I feel I really draw from my time in the Marine Corps and as a pilot, and I have done a lot of self-reflection into how I was able to take control of my thoughts and prepare myself for really difficult situations and overcome painful situations that maybe other people would have folded and would have said, well, forget it. This is just not going to work out. And I realized that the patterns that I was using to get me further and further ahead are the same patterns that are used by other successful people that have achieved things far greater than I have. And so it is those patterns that I'm passionate about imparting to others as clients and even to my friends and family through utilizing hypnosis. And hypnosis is not what people think it is. It has this mystique about it because of the way it's portrayed in the media. But hypnosis, by my definition, is the intersection of meditation and coaching. So you take a person, you guide them into a meditative state where their mind is focused, but free flowing. There are no distractions. The mind is very calm. And in that space of calm and and focus, you inject breakthroughs, insights, concepts, suggestions that are all intended to help the person access resources and strength in themselves that they've always had but that they don't, didn't necessarily know that they had. Mm-hmm. And the reason hypnosis is so effective is because most of the time we're moving through life in a very distracted state. Our mind is not calm. Our mind is not focused. There are, are voices in our head from our past relationships or our parents or our, our own bad experiences. All those voices keep us from really being able to listen to our own inner truth. And so this combination of meditation and coaching is incredibly powerful at helping people to silence those voices and connect with their inner truth that will really set them free. Do you practice meditation or do you practice self-hypnosis now? And if so, can you tell me a pattern? Do you do this daily, a few times a day? How do you set up the time? You're a very busy person. You're doing MBA. You have this business. You're a mother of three kids and a dog. Your wife, how? I do find the time, but I, right now, because of the age of my children, I do it while I'm breastfeeding or while I'm pumping. So those are non-negotiable times during my day. So I will always be feeding a child or be preparing to feed a child. So in those moments where I'm, my little kids are basically holding me hostage, I practice gratitude. I practice a gratitude meditation and it's really about focusing on them. So I'll stroke their hair or 
notice something beautiful about one of them and, and just identify three things that I'm incredibly grateful for. And those three things I usually choose to be two big things. Like I'm very grateful for my kids or I'm very grateful for my life or whatever. And I, I visualize something specific. So I'll visualize maybe my experience is flying. So, you know, I'm really grateful that I had this amazing experience and I'll remember a time when I had a great flight or I had a, a really powerful experience in aviation. And that visualization changes the way I feel. That image changes the feelings that I'm experiencing in my body. So when you say you change, the way you feel changes, can you describe that change? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as a general rule for the listeners, our thoughts create feelings and the feelings that we experience are actually biochemical reactions in the body. So if you think of something that makes you angry, that feeling of anger produces a cascade of biochemical responses in the body that elevates your heart rate, releases cortisol, dilates your blood vessels in your hands and your feet, that sort of thing. It elicits a stress response. When I focus on gratitude and I imagine scenarios or events that make me feel grateful, the feeling of gratitude as I experience it is my heart opening, a warmth in my chest area. I experience it as my stomach relaxing and my diaphragm relaxing my heart rate goes down. In fact, I'm experiencing it right now because I'm... Me too. Exactly. Because probably as I describe something I'm grateful for, it causes you to think of something that you mm -hmm. might be grateful for. Mm -hmm. And as right. I describe my experience of the feeling of gratitude, you mirror me and it's neuroscience. We each have neurons called mirror neurons in ourselves that allow us to reflect back what we hear or what we perceive. And it is this process of mirroring that allows me to guide people into hypnosis. Essentially, I effectively guide myself and by guiding myself, I guide them. And it puts me and the client in a state of, we're in sync with one another. The same phenomenon happens when a person is listening to a story. So if you're listening to a TED Talk, for example, or you're listening to your grandfather tell you a story, and if you're really focused on the story and, and present with that person as they're telling the story, studies have shown that the brain waves of the person telling the story matches the brain waves of the person receiving the story and vice versa. It's really about connection. And hypnosis is a phenomenon that we experience on a daily basis, but we don't know that we are experiencing it or we call it by another name. So anyone who is daydreaming, anyone who's in a state of flow or is in the zone, maybe as an athlete, or if you're imagining the last fight you had with your spouse or your family member or your friend, and you're re-experiencing those emotions of anger, you've just hypnotized yourself, but you don't call it by that name. You call it reliving an old uh, argument, but we do it all the time. The problem is that most of us are not 
aware that we're being hypnotized either by our own negative thought patterns or by other people's advertising messages or marketing messages. I like to say that I actually give people back control over themselves and over their mind because I'm teaching them how to put themselves in hypnosis, how to guide themselves to find solutions rather than be carried away by other people's messages. By teaching them that, I feel like I'm giving them back power in their own lives. Thank you so much for this. This is really helpful, very detailed explanation. We are out of time. I have a question that I ask of all of my guests. For those service members that are going through hard times right now, what are your recommendations? What would you suggest? My recommendation for any service member going through hard times, and this is really something that will work if you do it, find a quiet place. The bathroom is fine, (laughs) right? Find a quiet place where you feel safe, where you feel like you can be alone and feel safe. And in that safe space, think of three things for which you're truly grateful. Everyone can think of three things. Let two of those things be very big, as big as you want them to be. And let the third one be something very small, like you're just grateful for the beautiful sunny day or you're grateful for the smile of a child, whatever it is, but let it be something small. And really visualize and connect with those three experiences of gratitude. And from that place, grab a piece of paper and write down exactly what you want your life to look like. Mm. Don't limit yourself. Release any notion of what you think can be done or what you think cannot be done. Mm-hmm. Write your vision for your life exactly as you want it in every regard, career-wise, financially, emotionally, relationship, physically, everything. Write and don't stop writing until you feel like you have nothing more to say. And, and you'll know when you've come to a good stopping point. And then come back to that vision periodically, you know? And slowly what you'll find is that your mind subconsciously is going to try to make your life look like that. And it will start to notice things around you, opportunities that you may not have noticed before that very quietly move you in the direction of that vision. But it starts with having a vision. And usually what I found is that people who are having a really hard time, who are feeling desperate and angry or sad or just feeling really awful, it's because they don't feel like they have anything to look forward to. And they feel like they don't have a compelling future to live for. And I, I implore you, connect with a feeling of gratitude, write down your vision unconstrained, and then revisit that vision. Just read it like a story, like a prayer that you're reading every day. And your mind will naturally, without you even realizing it, move you in that direction. Thank you for that. This is perfect. All right. Thank you so much. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airman's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. 
This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfidotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v.fedotova.mil at mail.mil.